Volume three, chapter twelve of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume three, chapter twelve. We met hand to hand, we clasped hands close and fast, as close as oak and ivy stand. But it is past. Christina Rossetti. Half false, half fair, all feeble. Swinburne. When John roused himself from the long stupor into which he had fallen after Lord Hemsworth's departure, he put his finished letter to Colonel Tempest into an envelope, and then remembered with annoyance that he did not know how to address it. When the landlady in Brook Street had told him that Colonel and Captain Tempest had gone to Brighton that morning, he had been too much taken aback at the moment to think of asking for their address. He was too much exhausted in mind and body to go back to the lodgings for it immediately. He wrote a second letter, this time to his lawyer, and then, conscious of the state of his body by the shaking hand and clumsy, tardy brain, which made of a short and explicit statement so lengthy an affair, he mechanically changed his clothes, dined, and sat watching the smoke of his cigar. Presently, with food and rest, the apathy into which exhaustion had plunged him lifted, and the restlessness of a tortured mind returned. He had only as yet seen one of the three men whom he had come to London to interview, namely Lord Frederick. Colonel Tempest, the second, was out of town, but probably the third, Lord Jones, the minister, was not. It was close on ten o'clock. He should probably find him in his private room in the house. John flung away his cigar, and was in a few minutes spinning towards the Houses of Parliament in a hansom. He had not thought much about it till now. But as he turned in at the gates, the lines of the great buildings suddenly brought back to him the remembrance of his own ambition, and of the splendid career that had seemed to be opening before him when last he had passed those gates, which had fallen at a single touch like a house of cards, a house built with fortune's cards. There was a queue of carriages at the speaker's entrance. A party was evidently going on there. John went to the house and inquired for Lord Jones. He was not there. Perhaps he was at the Speaker's reception. John remembered, or thought he remembered, that he had a car for it, and went on there. His mind was set on finding Lord Jones. History repeats itself, and so does our little private history. Only when the same thing happens it finds us changed, and we look back at what we were last time, and remember our old young self with wonder. Was that indeed I? Possibly, to some, an evening party may appear a small event, but to die, as she stood in the same crowd as last year, in the same pictured rooms, it seemed to her that her whole life had turned on the pivot of that one evening a year ago. The lights glared too much now. The babble dazed her. Noises had become sharp swords of late. Everyone talked too loud. She chatted and smiled, and vaguely wondered that her friends recognised her. I am not the same person, she said to herself, but no one seems to see any difference. Presently she found herself near the same arched window where she had stood with John last year. She moved for a moment to it and looked out. There was a mist across the river. The light struggled through, blurred and feeble. It had been clear last year. She turned and went on talking, of she knew not what, to a very young man at her elbow, who was making laborious efforts to get on with her. 
Our eyes looked back from the recess across the sea of faces and fringes and bald and close-cropped heads. The men, who were not John, but yet had a momentary resemblance to him, were the only people she distinctly saw. Tall, fair men were beginning to complain of her unrecognising manner. Yes, history repeats itself. Among the crowd of the distance she suddenly saw him. John's rugged profile and square head were easy to recognise. He had said there was nothing between them. Their last meeting rushed back upon her with a scathing recollection of, of how she had held him in her arms and pressed her face to his. Shame scorched her inmost soul. She turned towards her companion with fuller attention than what she had previously accorded him. As John walked through the rooms, scanning the crowd, the possibility of meeting Di did not strike him. With a frightful clutch of the heart he caught sight of her. A man, who instantly aroused his animosity, was talking eagerly to her. Something in her appearance startled him. Was it the colour of her gown that made her look so pale? The intense light that gave her calm, dignified face that peculiar, worn expression? She had a faint, fixed smile as she talked that John did not recognise, and that, why he knew not, cut him to the quick. Was this Di? Could this be Di? He knew she had seen him. He hesitated a moment, and then went towards her. She received him without any change of countenance. The fixed smile was still on her lips as he spoke to her, but the lips had whitened. Their eyes met for a moment. Oh, what had happened to Di's lovely eyes that used to be so grave and gay? He stammered something, said he was looking for someone, and passed on. She turned to speak to someone else as he did so. He strangled the nameless emotion which was choking him, and made his way into the next room. He had a vague consciousness of being spoken to, and of making Herculean efforts to grind out answers, and then of pouncing on the secretary of the man he was looking for, who told him his chief had suddenly and unexpectedly started for Paris that afternoon on affairs of importance. John mechanically noted down his address in Paris, and left the house. The necessity of remembering where his feet were taking him recalled him somewhat to himself. He pulled himself together and slackened his pace. "'I'll go to Paris by the night express,' he said to himself, the feverish longing for action increasing upon him as this new obstacle met him. He dared not remain in London. He knew for a certainty that if he did he should go and see die. Neither could he write to Lord Jones all that he must tell him, or put into black and white the favour he had to ask of him. The first favour John had ever needed to ask, namely, to be helped by means of Lord Jones's interest, to some post in which he could for the moment support himself and Mitty. As he turned up St. James's Street, he remembered with irritation that he had not yet procured Colonel Tempest's and Archie's address. While he hesitated whether to go on, late as it was, to Brook Street for it, he remembered that he could probably obtain it much nearer at hand, namely at Archie's rooms in Piccadilly. Archie, who was a person of much pink and monogrammed correspondence, would probably have left his address behind him, stuck in the glass of the mantelpiece, as his manner was. The latchkey he had lent John in the autumn, when John had made use of his rooms, was still on his chain. He had forgotten to return it. He let himself in, went upstairs to the second floor, and opened the door of the little sitting-room. "'Here you are at last,' 
said a woman's voice. He went in quickly and shut the door behind him. A small woman in shimmering evening dress, with diamonds in her hair, came towards him and stopped short with a little scream. It was Madeline. He looked at her in silence, standing with his back to the door. A smouldering fire in his eyes seemed to burn her, for she shrank away to the further end of the room. John observed that there was a fire and lamps, and knit his brows. Some persons are unable to perceive when explanations are useless. Madeline began one, something about Archie's difficulties, money, etc. But John cut her short. "'You are not accountable to me for your actions,' he said. "'Keep your explanations for your husband.' He looked again with perplexity at the fire and the lamps. He knew Archie had gone that morning on three days' leave to Brighton with his father. "'Let me go,' she said, whimpering. "'I, I won't stay here to be thought ill of, to, to have evil imputed to me.' "'You will answer one question first, said John. "'You impute evil to me. I, I know you do,' said Madeline, beginning to cry. "'But it's your, your own coarse mind that sees wickedness in everything.' "'Possibly,' said John. "'When do you expect, Archie?' "'Any moment. I wish he was here that he might tell you.' "'Thank you. That will do. You can go now.' He opened the door. She drew a long cloak over her shoulders and passed him without speaking, looking like what she was, one of that class whose very existence she professed to ignore, but whose ranks she had virtually joined when she announced her engagement at Sir Henry in the morning post. Perhaps, inasmuch as that, untempted, she had sold herself for diamonds and position, instead of under strong temptation for the bare necessities of life like her poorer sisters, she was more degraded than they. But fortunately for her, and many others in our midst, society upheld her. John looked after her, and then followed her. There was not a soul on the common staircase or in the hall. He passed out just behind her, and they were in the street together. "'Take my arm,' he said, and she took it mechanically. He signalled a four-wheeler and helped her into it. "'Where do you wish to go?' he said. "'I don't know,' she said feebly apparently too much scared to remember what her arrangements had been. John considered a moment. "'Where is Sir Henry?' "'Dining at Woolwich.' "'Can't you go home?' "'No, no, it is much too early. I'm, I'm dressed for I, I said I was going to, uh, And I have left there already, and the, the, the carriage is waiting there still.' "'You must go back there,' said John. "'Get your carriage and go home in it.' He gave the cabman the address and paid him. Then he returned to the cab door. "'Lady Verelst,' he said, less sternly, "'believe me, Archie is not worth it.' "'You don't understand,' she tried to say, with an assumption of injured dignity. "'It was only that I—' "'He is not worth it,' said John, with emphasis. And he shut the door of the cab and watched it drive away. Then he went back to Archie's room and sat down to consider. A faint odour of scent hung about the room. He got up and flung open the window. Years afterwards, if a woman used that particular scent, the same loathing disgust returned upon him. "'He took three days' leave to nurse his father at Brighton, with the intention of coming back here to-night,' John said to himself. "'He'll be here directly.' And he made up his mind what he would do. And in truth, a few minutes later, a hansom rattled to the door, and Archie came in, breathless with haste. He looked eagerly round the room, and then, as he caught sight of the unexpected occupant, 
His face crimsoned, and he grinned nervously. "'She is gone,' said John, without moving. Oh, "'Gone? Who? I don't know what you mean.' "'No, of course not. What made you so late?' "'Train broke down outside London.' "'I came here to get your address at Brighton, because I have news for you. "'You are there at this moment, aren't you, looking after your father?' Archie did not answer. He only grinned and showed his teeth. John was aware that, though he stood quietly enough by the table, turning over some loose silver in his pocket, he was in a state of blind fury. He also knew that if he waited a little it would pass. Something in John's moral and physical strength had always the power to quell Archie's fits of passion. "'I had no intention of prying on you,' said John, after an interval. "'I wanted your address at Brighton, and I could not wait till to-morrow for it. I am going to Paris to-night on business, and—' As it is yours as much as mine, you will go with me. Archie never indulged in those flowers of speech with which some adorn their conversation. But there are exceptions to every rule, and he made one now. He culled, so to speak, one large bouquet of the choicest epithets, and presented it to John. He knew not what to say, and so he swore. That is why men swear often, and women seldom. "'I shall not leave you in London with that woman,' said John calmly. "'You will go to her if I do.' "'I, I shall do as I think fit,' stammered Archie, striking the table with his slender white hand. "'There you err,' said John. "'You will start with me in half an hour for Paris.'" End of Volume 3 Chapter 12